0: back, ladies and gentlemen, to uh, Connie Bristow's USUK podcast. This this, is the second part of our look at the 1975 Act and claims that individuals make against estates when they've been left out. I'm still here with uh, Samara Dutton, the head of our contentious trusts and probate team. And in this uh, half of our series, we're going to look at uh, what individuals can do to sort of ward off claims uh, against their estates during their lifetime, but also looking at when they might fall outside of these rules and so don't even need to worry about them in the first place. To that second point first, the absolute key uh, thing to note in all of these discussions, when we were looking at the 1975 Act in the first half, was that we presumed that Mr Adams was a, a domiciliary of the UK and thus he, his estate was open to a potential claim by claimants under the 1975 Act. The important point to make is that if someone is not domiciled in the UK, then the 1975 Act uh, does not apply to them. I mean, as a binary, uh, as a binary point, Samara, that's a fairly black and white thing. Yeah, you know, if not domiciled, Act doesn't apply
1: entirely. Entirely black and white is the starting point, and you need to check that point at the outset if you have anyone who has any kind of connection or residence in a different country. Obviously, domicile itself is a difficult concept and is something that you might spend a long time arguing about, but, but you need to establish domicile to bring your 1975 act claim. The deceased has to be domiciled in England and Wales
0: i mean and, and as you as we alluded to in the first half you know if there's one topic that that really likes to get lawyers going particularly estate planning laws the question of domicile is a is one that really gets you know gets us moving it is it is a fiddly and nebulous concept and it is one in fact we have looked at previously on the episode on u.s uk probates with james cook uh, because domicile has such an impact on succession equally domicile has a significant impact as is the case here on claims under the 1975 act so i don't presume to i don't intend to uh, go back over the uh, Full rules related to domicile in detail. But just as a reminder for those that maybe haven't listened to that episode with James Cook yet, domicile for UK purposes is a very nebulous concept uh focused around where one considers their ultimate permanent home to be Um, you know where inside you do you consider yourself most closely connected with which is really a matter of intention but showing intention is incredibly hard and so all we can really do is show it based on the facts and circumstances certainly for uk purposes it can relate to things like where your closest family ties are your social ties where you want to die, where you have a will, and you can live in a place for an incredibly long time and not be domiciled there. Equally, you could step foot in a new country and immediately acquire a new domicile of choice. It's all based on facts and circumstances, and it's for the individual in question to assert that during their lifetime, or for their executives to assert that on their death. Now, a couple of things to say about that, because a number of things branch off from that issue of domicile. The firstly is, here we are talking about the concept of Common law domicile, law, or that someone's actual domicile status. There are other types of domicile, such as deemed domicile status, which is a wholly tax fiction concept that relates to how someone is exposed to tax in the UK. Deemed domicile status is irrelevant for the purposes of the 1975 Act. Someone can be deemed domiciled here but retain a non UK domicile, and in that case or in those circumstances, the 1975 Act is still uh, irrelevant for these purposes. Samara
1: that 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 is. Correct. I, I, I sort of refer to them as my domicile and your domicile, because I, I deal less with, with tax points <laughs> I like that. domiciles and things like this. But my domicile point, if, if I'm arguing the common law domicile status and somebody has claimed deemed domicile or avoided to claim deemed domicile, that, that could still be a factor that I use to try and argue whichever side of the coin I'm trying to argue on domicile, if it is an issue in dispute. So because it may everything have but it won't be determinative.
0: Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Um, equally, of, uh, similar to the domicile, the deemed domicile point is we might consider someone a domiciliary in the UK, but a foreign jurisdiction might consider that person a domiciliary of that jurisdiction. So again, taking the, the case of the Americans, a US citizen is a domiciliary of the US under the US, ta- uh, the US rules. And so a US citizen resident in the UK may well be a domiciliary of each jurisdiction for their own purposes. And then we go and look to double-tax treaties and things to try and uh, analyse and conclude, well, in which country is that person treaty domiciled, because that can affect how someone is taxed again. Again, that is not relevant for these purposes. We are talking about purely under UK law, is that person domiciled here, because it is a piece of UK legislation that determines whether someone can bring a claim against the estate or not. So it really is actually discarding all of the kind of detritus around domicile and going right back to that core concept of someone's domicile. The reason it becomes, uh, uh, it can become potentially problematic, and particularly problematic in cases, say, where there's a US-UK element, is if you have a, just if, if, if Mr. Adams's son, I'm going to call him Quincy now because I'm, I've decided that he is the sixth president, um, if Quincy decides, I want to bring a claim against my father's estate, but some might argue, his executors have argued that he's not domiciled here, so therefore I can't bring a claim against the estate, but I want to bring a claim against the estate, I have to assert that he is domiciled here. Now, you can imagine HMRC is going to be very interested in a beneficiary who wants to make a compelling argument that the individual was domiciled in the UK when they died. From a tax perspective, that opens up that estate to a much greater exposure to inheritance tax and possibly uh, other taxes as well. And so this argument is to is the person domiciled here, are they not domiciled here between the executors and the beneficiary? Has wider consequences for the taxation of the estate, and I imagine Samara, it's a it's a point of tactics and negotiation. How quickly or not you bring a claim, because that's a point of leverage. That if you're the beneficiary, means you want to get that in quite quickly, because the executors will want to absolutely make sure that the tax is wrapped up before they entertain ideas about you know domicile.
1: Yeah, I it, it's certainly something that you can bring to bear on negotiations at an early stage if you, if you have. Reasonable evidence to support the view of a domicile in England and Wales, then you can use that to, as you say, leverage the executors, et cetera, to an early settlement. Usually, it will depend on the tax consequences precisely, but they're going to need to take a view on whether it is worth having that argument in court because domicile ultimately, as a preliminary issue to a 1975 Act claim is one where the court is collating and assessing all the evidence of intention, but ultimately imposing its view of what the deceased intentions were about where they wanted to, to live. And, and that is unpredictable in its nature. So you, you can't guarantee that a court will support the executive's view of domicile. So if we, if we're trying to get the executors to give an early settlement and early distribution to our client, then arguing the domicile point. And, and given the if, if that's going to have huge repercussions in tax consequences for the estate, they may well take the view that it's worth speaking to the other beneficiaries and saying look, we might as well pay this off now in order to avoid huge tax charges. It's it's an easy win if that if that is the situation.
0: You know, there's a there's there's I imagine always going to be a commercial discussion to be had by the executives saying, who would you rather pay money to? Would you rather pay money to the tax man or would you rather pay money to a disgruntled beneficiary?
1: And and how much are we going to pay? If, If the tax man bill is 10 times the amount that we need to get rid of this potential claim... Then, it, then it's exactly, it's just an easy commercial
0: decision. But take. Bear in mind that inevitably there are probably going to be legal fees in both scenarios, having a protracted argument with HMRC or a protracted argument in court. Possibly the court answer might be the longer one, but it depends on how HMRC take that approach. And so, you know, yeah. it's a value judgment and uh, it's one of those circumstances where there is no right or wrong answer in law. It's a matter of negotiation in these cases and taking view of the time.
1: Absolutely. And, and I mean, I suppose uh, it, it may come into what what we would discuss later in terms of what people can do but anyone in that situation if if you do have various connections to various jurisdictions but you of yourself know which one you consider your home or indeed have got tax advice on which one you should consider your home um, it, it is worthwhile having some kind of statement about that existing somewhere, particularly if you think there's anybody likely to bring a claim against your... Because your own words and your own views on what you feel will hold weight.
0: That's a a point that we make quite frequently to clients in this position, which is your words during your lifetime are always going to be stronger than posthumously after your death. The executors are only going to... if it is enough of a contentious issue, the executives are only going to have to conduct that exercise after your death anyway, and you know your own information more strongly than your executors do. So to the extent that you have the appetite for it, it's better to get these things uh, resolved beforehand. Gosh, if only I could recommend a lawyer that could help you with the dollar cost thing. <laughs> ah well, I'm sure you'll find one somewhere. Um <laughs> so the look looking at the sort of the final the final sort of section of sections that we were going to um look at uh, in this in this series all well and good us explaining here are the risks of, uh, or here's who could bring a claim and and who has her standing. But what can people actually do or what are the ways in which uh, these kind of issues can be avoided where possible we've already mentioned one which is don't be domiciled in the uk but you don't yes. have that you don't always have that flexibility During that is your- the
1: best one if you can do it that's
0: yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. S- slightly harder if you are you know, salt uh, assault of the earth yeah. or, you know, your family's <laughs> family's 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 within the uh, within within the sound of the bow bells or something you've got little chance of claiming non-domicile status in those circumstances what can be done samara and i were were we're chatting beforehand about some of the various routes through this and we came up with three options uh, that are uh, increasing uh, in terms of their severity but all of which are ways that can be used to Ward off these claims, and we 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 tend to be titled the provision discussion and aggression. By which we mean provision.
1: well you did. Sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Consider whether that person should have some uh, provision made for them. Something goes a long way compares to just cutting someone out, because then it's a question of is that enough? Whereas if you give someone nothing, it's very easy to claim, well, I've had nothing at all. So of course, anything is better than nothing. So is your estate large enough that you can make provision for them? Or is your estate flexible enough that, you know, if there's a discretionary trust on death, for example, they could be brought back in. You never know. Relationships may heal. So, you know, don't leave your will planning a shut door where nothing can happen afterwards. In terms of discussion, this is probably actually the the most uh, fruitful area, which is have these discussions during your lifetime the actions of an aggrieved uh, beneficiary after your death are going to be heightened if these things come as a surprise. If you're estranged from someone, if you're estranged from a child, then, as tomorrow as you pointed out in the Alan Mitsa case, you may feel that your child is estranged from you. But does your child agree? Does your child hold the same uh, view of your relationship? That open communication, admittedly, is quite hard if you are estranged. But to the extent that you feel that, look, look dear children of mine, I'm actually going to leave lots of my money to charity, because you're very lucky that I'm incredibly wealthy, and I'm going to leave you with what I consider to be an an appropriate amount, but I don't want you to have all of my wealth because of eight reasons X, Y, Z. Having that discussion beforehand is an absolute key part of estate planning, um, and that will hopefully mean that the children don't have a shock when the will is turned over and the number on it for them is much more than they thought.
1: Yeah, I think another sort of circumstance where, where that's important, apart from estrangement, is obviously where you have um, second family, second or subsequent families. It, it may be that your estate is relatively modest. You want to leave everything to your second wife, but you have an agreement with her that if you were the first to die, she would, she would leave part of her estate when she dies to two children from your former marriage. Now, unless you have mutual wills, you can't enforce that. But you might explain to your children that that is the agreement that you've reached with her and that you trust her to do what she should. And that might be dependent on on how their relationship fares further down the line. But at least your children don't don't end up on death feeling like, well, why is she getting everything? If you've had a conversation with them around the fact that, that that is what you need to do for her, but hopefully their relationship with her is such that it will continue on. That sort of engenders, hopefully, you know, a wish on their part to maintain a relationship with second wife as well. Um, I I agree that just any sort of openness or communication around your intentions and your reasons for them during your life, although they might be difficult discussions to have, will prepare any potential claimant against your estate for what's going to happen. And that will reduce the antagonistic element of, of any claim.
0: It's worth pointing out also that um, if you are in a circumstance where we have a second a second marriage and children from a first marriage, whilst leaving assets outright to a surviving spouse, the surviving second spouse is perfectly doable and, and lots of people will do that will have done that in the past. You can also use various forms of trust mechanisms into yeah. a, a sort of a, you know, a life interest trust for the surviving spouse, the assets of which revert back to the children of the first marriage um, on the death of the surviving spouse. Those kind of trust mechanisms can also help to Sort of corral the assets through the wife of the second spouse, so that she is not left without, uh, and there, and then onto the children um, thereafter. Again, and that
1: obviously has tax efficiencies. Plus, hopefully, again, they all sort of work together. I mean, in those circumstances, you'd often have that spouse as as a trustee. So you, you yeah. probably want to sort of well there'd be some sort of relationship and hopefully a decent one going
0: forward yes you want you you want the spouse as a trustee so that she has a stake but you also don't want the trustee to have her to have or her or him to have unilateral um no. ability to take decisions by themselves so some combination of you know the spouse one of the children and maybe a professional, a professional maybe, yeah. maybe a professional executor, <laughs> so that then it's a different party each being represented separately so yes uh, that, that again forms part of the forward-thinking planning uh during the testator's lifetime
1: I mean, also that that does bring into conversation um, one area. So, so in, in that scenario, then actually your your adult children of previous marriages or relationships would have some provision, albeit likely under a, a discretionary trust. But that that arrangement does make it harder to bring a 75 Act claim again, because there's at least the potential for provision to be made for them, where it's not that they've been completely written out of your estate. I I think the courts have looked at whether discretionary entitlements under trust arrangements are reasonable provision for the purposes of the Act. Um, I, I think in some cases where spouses have said, well, hang on, I've got no guaranteed entitlement, so that's not reasonable provision. The courts have had some sympathy for that view, but I've not seen the same in the case of adult children. Again, it's going to be highly fact-specific, but if if your child is, is included as a beneficiary of a discretionary trust under your will, then that would be an additional hurdle to them bringing a claim, I think, as yeah. compared to being written out altogether. Yeah. And you, you might then... Leave a letter of wishes, which obviously doesn't have to be <laughs> disclosed, suggesting that there are other beneficiaries that you would prefer to be benefited above them. Um, I mean, probably that would come out in the wash at some stage, but but ultimately, it, it, it's just making things harder for for a potential applicant.
0: Yeah, and and if you want to make it really hard for a potential applicant, we come to the the final of our three our three options. We've done provision, we've done discussion, we come to aggression which, as it, as it suggests, is the most dramatic option, which is to either put into the will a form of non-contest clause that says anyone who contests this will effectively has their, has their entitlement taken away from them, or just you accept my state may have a claim uh, made against it, but I'm just going to instruct my executors just to fight it really hard, and then it's up to the courts. And you want to go through the courts, then you go through the courts. Non contest non contestation clause, uh, clauses, uh, Samara. They are uncommon. I think you tend to see them more commonly in other jurisdictions, but they are a permissible uh, clause in, a, in, in in UK wills.
1: They are permissible. Um, I am I'm seeing more not of the actual clauses, but I'm seeing more discussion around them um, and the potential to use them. Uh, I think they are and and often in specifically in the context of 75 back claims you, you know if you if this is the provision I'm making for you it's relatively small but if you challenge it through a 75 act claim then you lose it altogether so it just it just increases the risk for the potential applicant
0: unless, unless of course they bring their claim and they win and then they win from a basis of getting nothing so the the amount available to them for what counts as provision is of course greater but it, it puts the fear in their mind that how much do I really want to go through the application because if I'm unsuccessful I'll get nothing whereas if I'd kept my mouth shut I would have at least would got, have got something
1: to, su- to some extent that is inherent in a 75 act claim anyway because if you are making the claim and you're unsuccessful then you're going to get lumbered with a cost bill as well so you're sort of You've got a loss on top of the loss of the claim, but, but this just, just adds to it. And then obviously you'd rather walk away with your 10,000 than minus 40 or 50 from trying to fight it in the court. I think that these clauses are, as, you, well, as you've as you termed them, quite aggressive. So I think you need to be careful about using them in certain circumstances. I I, I think they may have a, a sort of counterintuitive effect in that somebody who wasn't necessarily going to bring a claim sees this and is like what you know how dare you think this of me I, I'd just rather bring the claim because I'm so offended I I, I it, it could backfire
0: yeah don't 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 tell me what to do kind of approach I yeah can, I can same. imagine that, that yeah that, I can imagine and,
1: and <laughs> I don't need your Whatever you've left me, I'm going to go after the whole lot, which is not what 75 claims are for, or sits, or based on maintenance, etc. But, yeah. but y- you could engender such bad feeling that it might it might encourage someone to bring claim that wouldn't have otherwise.
0: Yeah. So that's 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 how domicile can can impede an, an application, uh, and that's how we can sort of ward off an application in 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 before or, or after the uh, the testator's death. The sort of the, the final sort of part to look at is what if the deceased didn't hold their estate uh, in their own name on their death, but they they'd carried out various forms of lifetime planning that may mean that you know some or all of their wealth was held in trust. Now, the 1975 Act deals with someone's estate that they hold um, in their own name. Is it not the case tomorrow? If I, if I, or if I'm, if I'm Mr. Adams, and I've set up a set up a trust during my lifetime for the benefits of various people, and my son Quincy is not in the class of beneficiaries, and there's no way that he can be in the class of beneficiaries, he, Quincy can't use the 1975 Act to make a claim against the assets held in trust because those are not part of his father's estate.
1: Yeah, I, I mean that's the that's the starting and guiding principle. I, the one exception to that is if Mr. Adams Senior has transferred huge swathes of his wealth into that trust within the six years prior to his death for the express purpose of avoiding an Inheritance Act claim by Quincy. So there is a provision under the Act that where you can... And obviously, that is a difficult thing to demonstrate. You need to show that the intention in taking assets out of the estate in any manner, whether it's paid into a trust or transferred to a wife or whatever you've done with the assets in question. If it was done within the six years prior to death, and if you can establish that it was done with the intention, specific intention of defeating someone's claim under this Act, then the court can bring it back into account, into the size of the net estate. Otherwise, if the assets aren't in your name, don't fall within your personal estate, then no, they can't be touched under this Act.
0: However, if Quincy was a beneficiary of that trust... Then the door, if, if not shut, is at least sort of ajar. There is at least do the courts have slightly more power to take into account his discretionary entitlement as regards his general financial provision? And so, in that
1: case, I guess would be the same as we were just discussing. It. Yeah, if you have a discretionary will trust, what yeah. it, it, well, where that would come into play is that Quincy part of. The assessment that the court is making will be Quincy's financial needs and resources at the current time and in the future. And if he is the, a discretionary beneficiary of a really valuable trust, then somebody trying to refute his claim under the 75 Act will be trying to say, there is a very strong likelihood here that he will have a huge or a decent payment out of that trust at some time in the future. He will be trying to say, I may be a discretionary beneficiary, but I've never been paid anything. There's no intention on the trustee's part to make any pay. There's still an argument to be had, but it will be relevant to the fact that there is a potential there for him to to receive something quite significant.
0: So I think think the... uh... The example or the hypothetical example that I would sort of hold up as being something that ties in all of the various things that we've discussed, not only in this episode, but frankly, in a lot of the episodes we've done previously, is the fact that many Americans like to conduct their estate planning on their death, not through a will, but through a form of lifetime trust. Uh, so if I, a wealthy American, want to avoid the U.S. probate process, I might hold my estate through a revocable living trust that's deemed to be transparent in the U.S. Uh, and so it's not really a trust at all. We've discussed previously. I discussed we discussed with my uh, my discussion with Gillian Everall of unfair Tax uh, that why that's not the case necessarily in the UK and how we tax those trusts differently. But I sort of I, I reflect as we close what would happen if a if a disgruntled beneficiary wanted to bring a claim against their say their parent who's an American who had a a revocable trust through which they held all their assets. Those assets aren't in their free estate and aren't in their free estate for for UK purposes. They're held at best, on, on, on a sort of, a of bear trust, or at worst, they're held in an actual sort of substantive settlement. Uh, and so there's nothing in their free estate at all. What would the likelihood be of someone being able to make that claim? I guess in the first instance, if you were acting for the estate, you'd be trying to claim quite hard that the person wasn't domiciled in the UK. They were an American domiciliary, because why yeah. would, well, if you're sending these things up and you have any kind of connection to the US, then you'd be making a claim that you were an American domiciliary. Mm-hmm. Whether or not you'd returned here and you were a deemed domiciliary uh, for UK tax purposes, but it would be an interesting one. I don't know of any claims that have been brought, but then I I don't have my ear close enough to the ground. I'd be fascinated to see the discussion about whether the assets held in the estate uh, held in the trust of the grantor in the US would be accessible uh, under a uh, under a 975 claim. I, I guess we'll have to wait for someone to to call in with a with a case that they've got, and we can we we, we can we can litigate it.
1: I think so. I would <laughs> love to do that. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Yeah, Fab. Look, Samara. Thank you so much for coming on uh, today. Over these over these two episodes, uh, it's been wonderful to talk to you. If individuals during their lifetimes have questions about these things, uh, Samara and I and all of our colleagues uh, here are available to have these discussions. If you are someone who is currently uh, experiencing the loss of a parent or a loved one and who finds himself without financial provision, we are available. Please do contact us. We are happy to take you through the rules and 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 whether you know you have a viable claim uh get in contact but uh, until then until next time thank you samara uh, thank, thank you ladies you. And gentlemen for listening uh and uh we hope to see you on the next episode
1: thank you